I'm sure, of course, there'll be many things that they can say, but I suspect that there'll be one thing that may come to the fore, maybe dominate the conversation, and that'll be our culture's search for justice. We see it in the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, which aims to fight injustice by police against coloured people in America. We see it in the rise of the LGBTQI plus rights activists who seek justice for minorities. We see it for the right for the fight for equality and pay for genders. We see it in the push to reverse the effects of colonization in our countries. Now, I'm not really here to comment on the rights or wrongs of these different movements. But what I do want us to see is that there's a really deep-seated desire in humans for justice. Yet as we look out in the world, quite apart from these big social issues, it seems injustice is everywhere. Uh, Criminals who get away with crime because of some loophole, or some dodgy politicians who seem immune from their actions, or big corporate wealthy men who can do what they want because they have money. Perhaps in our own lives, you feel the weight of injustice as you miss out on promotion for no apparent reason, or someone you love gets sick and dies, or you just can't seem to get on top of your bills while everyone else seems to be doing financially pretty well. So as we look around the world with war, hunger, and suffering, many people have called into the question the very existence of God because they see the lack of justice. Several years ago in an interview, the famous uh, British entertainer, Stephen Fry, was asked what he would say to God if he died and was standing before him. And Fry responded that he would say to God, how dare you create a world in which there is such misery that's not our fault. It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Now, to our ears, I hope they're quite shocking words. And yet for many people in the world, this is their experience of God. If he's real, why is there so much injustice? If he's all-powerful, why doesn't he do something? And I wonder perhaps in our own quiet, honest moments, whether we sometimes too can question God's motives when we see things going wrong, as it were, as people seem to get away with evil and as we, as God's people, suffer. So how do we, as believers, deal with all these difficult questions? Can we have confidence that God is just and that he's all-powerful? Well, it's to questions like this that Obadiah actually speaks. It's this little punchy little book. It's actually the smallest in the Old Testament. It has three powerful messages with which to encourage God's people through the ages from the Jewish exiles first hearing this message to today, for us, here, as we sometimes wonder, well, what is God actually doing here? So the first message of this book that I want us to look at is God Hates Pride. Behind, If we think about it, behind many of the injustices of this world lies the issue of pride, where people think that they can do what they want, regardless of the suffering or pain they cause, and that they can get away with it. Now, it's to a people with a similar attitude of arrogance that Obadiah is sent, the Edomites. Now, we don't often hear about the Edomites, so who are they? 
Well, the Edomites are a story, sorry, the story of Edom and Israel is a story of ultimate sibling rivalry. The rivalry began in the womb of their mother as the twins Esau and Jacob fought. Now, I I remember when uh, Sarah was pregnant with our first baby in particular, there's something exciting about feeling, feeling those first few kicks. It's quite amazing. But for Rebecca, this was something quite different, as these two boys didn't just kick, they were actually physically fighting, the Bible tells us. Now, Esau was born first, which meant he was supposed to inherit everything. The family name, the wealth, and most importantly, the uh, covenant blessings of God. And yet, in, in typical fashion, God flipped this around, and he chose Jacob and rejected Esau. Now, Jacob's name means trickster or something similar, and he was actually a trickster by nature. Now, first, he tricked Esau out of his birthright for some red stew, and then out of his blessing from Isaac by dressing up in some animal skins. Now, at this point, Esau was ready to kill Jacob. And so Jacob made the quite sensible decision to, to run away. Now, eventually, Jacob does come back. And there's always an uneasy peace that existed between Jacob and Esau for the rest of their life. And this rivalry carried on through into their families. Uh, Jacob went on to have many children, and they and many children became the nation of Israel. Esau had many children who went on to have more children, and they became the nation of Edom. And these two nations, the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom, were always at war. I mean, when Israel wanted to come into the land of Canaan, when they were leaving Egypt, uh, Egypt and they wanted to go through East Edom to get to Canaan, and the Edomites said, no way. And that was the beginning of a pretty long war between them. So this is who Edom is. He's, he's the brothers of, they're the brothers of Israel, and yet sadly, they're the oldest and fiercest rivals. Now, I won't spend too much time here, but it is worth thinking about for ourselves at the moment um, that sadly, there are many here who can probably relate to rivalry within a family. It's destructive, and it doesn't lead anywhere positive, does it? It's not always possible to have peace and unity within a family, but we can control our own actions and attitudes. So let me ask you this morning, and this applies actually to the children just as much as the adults. When there are arguments or disputes in your family, do you seek the peace and well-being of everyone, or do you look out for your own interests? Now the reason I want us just to keep that in the back of our minds is because this rivalry between Edom and Israel goes from being from bad to worse to actually deadly. So this is where rivalry and sibling rivalry can lead. So it's good to think about. Now it's to Edom that God then sends Obadiah with the message in verses 1 and 2. So this is the message. God is sending the nations against Edom and she is going to be humbled. Well, why is that? Well, verse 3 tells us. It tells us that uh, The pride of your heart has deceived you. Edom is arrogant before God. In 586 BC, the Babylonians were back in Canaan to put down a rebellion of the nations in the area, including Judah. And yet in God's mercy, he had sent Jeremiah to the nations, warning them all not to fight Babylon, instead to submit to them and not join the rebellion. That's the passage we read earlier. 
It's actually a warning. I don't, I don't know if you saw Edom in there, but Edom was warned by God, don't fight them. You will lose. Now, whether because they listened to God or they were just afraid of the Babylonians, Edom actually backed out of the fight and they were left alone. The Babylonians didn't invade them. Now, as they sat smugly in their impregnable mountain fortress country, they had forgotten this. As Babylon destroyed all their rivals, Edom looked out and they could see a bright future ahead of them dominating Canaan. And as they looked, their hearts began to soar as they boasted, who will bring us down to earth? And yet they'd forgotten one thing. As high as their mountain is above all the rest of the earth around there, heaven is still higher. In verse 4, God says, I, I will bring you down to earth. In fact, I will bring you down so hard, it would have been better if you had merely been robbed. Because the robbers would have left you with something. I will cut off your wealth. I will cut off your wise men. I will destroy your strong armies. And in fact, I will leave you with nothing. People of God, God hates pride. I wonder how, how high we place pride on the list of sins. We think of murderers or adulterers and and uh, thieves, and we put them as some of the lowest of the low. But what about pride? Pride was at the heart of Satan's rebellion against God. It was at the heart of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. And it's actually at the heart of our rebellion against God. Now, pride says there are at least three things. Now, I didn't come up with these. I borrowed them off Kevin DeYoung, but I still thought it was very good. Uh, so pride says at least three things. It says, one, I don't need God. Two, I, don't, I got here without God. And three, I want to be God. I don't need God. I got here without God. And I want to be God. And Edom had brought into this lie. Now, thanks, thanks for the warning, God. We've, we've got it from here. If we, in fact, we're safe mostly because of our strength and the mountains and our wise men. Now, God really didn't do too much in warning us, did he? And they sort of put God to the side. So, so how are you dealing with pride in your life? As Christians, we're not immune to pride. We live in a very self-sufficient, strong, wealthy country. It's hard not to buy into the narrative that nothing can bring us down. And yet proud nations have fallen before. So where in your life is your alliance? In times of prosperity, it's, it's easy to begin to think we got where we are by our own doing. Now, God maybe had a, a small part to play. But I find it really confronting that in my own life, when I look at my, my prayer life, it always takes this big jump when things are going tough, things are going hard. And then as things get back under control and I seem to be back in control of my life, the prayer just starts to creep off, doesn't it? I think at the root of this is the sin of pride. As I think that when things are going well, well, I don't really need God that much. So if you can relate to this, then let me encourage you to turn to God in repentance. We need to ask God for true humility, which is knowing who and what you are before a holy God. That's what humility is. It's not that we have some sort of low confidence 
or act weak and soft. That's not humility. Rather, it's realizing that we depend on God for everything. That we need God to be God so that we can be who we are meant to be, creatures who worship our great creator. So this is the, the first message of Obadiah. God hates pride. And he hates it because it elevates we creatures to the place of God and says, God, we don't need you. Now, at this point, we might ask, okay, so God hates the proud, but was it really necessary to wipe Edom out? Was that just even? Well, the problem with pride is that it leads to action, action which calls God to respond. And in this case, Edom's pride had led them to challenge God by attacking his people, Israel. And God's response was to bring justice. And that's the second message we're going to see in Obadiah, that God brings justice. This is looking particularly at verses 10 to 14. So in the first couple of weeks of moving here from New Zealand, we were walking down by the river, and we nearly stepped on a snake. Now, as a, as a Kiwi, to see a casual snake just cruising across a path is a pretty terrifying sight. And the most dangerous thing we have is a possum in New Zealand. Now, I wonder what would have happened if I had reached out and grabbed that snake by the tail. I suspect that they may have been the first and the last snake that I'd ever see in the wild. And yet, in a very real way, the Edomites do this. They grab the snake by the tail. After escaping uh, from destruction because of God's warning, they then use God's mercy to them to go after his people. In doing this, they ignored the big promises of God to Israel and Edom's ancestor, Abraham. And those big promises in Genesis 12, God promised to bless those who blessed Israel and cursed those who cursed them. Edom should have known better. By going after Israel, Edom was calling these curses upon themselves. So what exactly had Edom done? Well, verse 11 tells us that when Israel was invaded, rather than help their brother, they ignored them. And actually, then they joined in. It was one thing for a foreign nation, such as Babylon, to come and devastate Jerusalem, and it was another for Israel's brother, Edom. Now, it's, it's not a great analogy, because New Zealand and Australia have a friendly rivalry. In fact, you probably don't even realize there's a rivalry. Uh, but imagine if a foreign power was to attack Australia. It, it would be one thing for New Zealand to say, hey, look, we're not strong enough to do much for you, but at least you guys can flee here and we'll do what we can for you. That would be one thing. But another thing altogether for New Zealand to go, right, well, now it's actually a good time to jump in and we'll join the attack. Right? That's quite a different scene, isn't it? And yet that's exactly what Edom does. Now, it all starts with the attitude towards what's happening. See that in verse 12. Do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. They gloated. They rejoiced. They boasted. They looked at Israel and thought, Aha! Now look who's on top. Now look who's strong. We are. Verse 13 tells us that they again couldn't help themselves, but they had to go and check out what was happening, leading to them entering Jerusalem 
with the Babylonians, and more boasting came with that. And Psalm 137 tells us a little bit about what they were boasting. We read there in verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. So they were, they were there saying, Bring, burn it down, burn it to the ground, get rid of it, leave none of it left. They wanted complete and utter destruction of Israel and Jerusalem. And then once the Edomites got inside, they began. They joined in the looting. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, Edom realized that this was a chance to eradicate Israel forever. So they stood and they took up strategic points at, uh, at crossroads and they began murdering all the Jewish fugitives who managed to escape. And they sold others into slavery. You can see that in verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives, to cut off Hill. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So ultimately, what they wanted to make sure was that there was no Israel left. So now God's pronouncement in verse 15, as you have done, so it shall be done to you, doesn't look so stark now, does it? once you consider Edom's actions. As they had been proud, they're going to be humbled. As they had invaded and looted, they will be plundered. As they had murdered and attempted to exterminate, so they will be wiped out. As Israel had lost her land, they will lose theirs. So in light of this, we can, we can say some things about God's justice. Just quickly a couple of them. So firstly, it's fear. God's justice didn't begin with Edom. It began with his own people for their, own, for their rebellion and sins. God is dealing with Israel for their pride first. There's no partiality with God. God will deal with the pride and the sins of his people. Yet when God did judge Edom, it was in a fair and even-handed way. God was not being spiteful. God was, in fact, being true to his Abrahamic promises. So the other thing we can say is that God's justice is inevitable. So notice how the book opens. Thus says the Lord. I, mean, I always hear trumpets when I hear those words. Thus says the Lord. Something big is coming. It's a pronouncement made with certainty. He doesn't say, well, I hope this happens, or maybe you'll be humbled, or boy, I wish somebody would deal with you. No, God declares, this will happen. Now, for the Jewish exiles, this message of justice, it brought hope. I mean, think about it. Their city had been ravaged, their temple burnt, and they were being dragged off into exile. And they were left wondering, has God forgotten us? And this was made all the more worse by the fact that their ancient enemies, the Edomites, were sitting there boasting, gloating, and rejoicing over them. And this message told them, God sees. God sees them, and he sees what their enemies do to them, and he will act. This gives them a hope that maybe God is not done with them yet. So how about for us? Does this message of justice for these Jewish exiles offer anything for us today? Well, well yes. But there are some big differences. 
So when people call into question God's justice because he doesn't immediately mete out punishment, they're confusing often God's justice with his grace. You see, God knows the heart of man, that it's sinful and it needs being dealt with. In fact, his very justice demands that we're all punished. The terrifying truth is that if God were to bring his judgment, justice upon us now, we could not stand for a second. Imagine if God did bring justice immediately for a sin done. You know, someone does a sin and bang, there's a, a, a bolt of lightning. Another thing, bang, another bolt of lightning. I mean, how many of us would be left? Yet God also knows that we are powerless to meet his justice or make up for our wrong. And this is why he sent Jesus. In Jesus, we have one who took upon himself the injustice of the world, the wrong done to God and the hateful actions that we have done to each other. Jesus never treated people unjustly, and he walked perfectly and humbly, not proudly, but humbly before God. Because of his perfect life, when Christ was unjustly victimized and killed, God raised him from the dead. And then in this death and resurrection, a way of salvation has been offered to all people, a way to be right before God once more. And this was open because Jesus not only took on the injustice, but he paid for our injustice that we deserve to be punished for. We deserve to be wiped out like the Edomites. And yet in Jesus, we've received God's grace. And so the big difference between then and now is that we're living in the gospel age, a time where God is holding off his judgment because he desires all people to come to him through Jesus. This is why it's so important to not confuse God's justice with his grace. As people look and see things of injustice in the world because of human sin, they call God into question. And yet God is allowing injustice to happen not because he doesn't care, God hates injustice, but because he wants to allow time for his people to repent, and people to repent. In fact, he often uses the injustice or the difficulties in people's lives to encourage people to look beyond themselves for something bigger, for him. But we must never be confused because just because God is holding off his judgment does not mean that he doesn't see or know what's going on. As a Christian, it's a very hard truth to grab onto at times when we look out and we see how horrible people are to each other, especially when we are the victims. So, so how does the gospel that Jesus has paid for our sins so that we can be in loving relationship with God, how does that help us deal with injustice as we go through life? Well, the gospel tells us that we are also sinners. One of the things we're tempted to overlook when we are wronged is that we too have wronged people before. So this should soften our hearts toward others who sin against us. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't want justice for ourselves? Well, no. We see this very heart cry of justice in us is answered in Jesus because God shows his commitment to justice. He will see justice done even at the cost of his own son. In our restored relationship with God, we know that God loves and cares for his people. So God does see what is done to us, and he will act in his time. 
Now, hopefully this encourages us. It means that we, we don't have to take revenge ourselves, but we can leave room for God. Instead, unlike Edom, we should actually see all people as our brothers and sisters through Adam, and we should treat them as such. We should seek their good and not people's destruction. We should desire that they come in repentance to God and not gloat when things go badly, even for the, the bad ones. Ultimately, our desire is that they become brothers and sisters not only in Adam, but they become brothers and sisters in Christ. So as we engage with people, it shouldn't be in a judgmental way. Rather, it should be in a way which offers Christ to them and the hope of the gospel. And we can take courage that even if bad things do happen to us, God will act and eventually there will be justice. Now this idea of God's justice should also be a source of great comfort to us. And this is what the, the third message that Obadiah wants us to see. That the purpose of God's justice is because God has a future for his people. God has a future for his people. Obadiah comes with a, a far bigger and bolder view of the future than God merely dealing with Edom. He sees a day when God will judge the world and restore Israel, or all of God's people, to everything she was meant to be. So we can see this when we look at verse 15. It says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. This is quite a surprising twist, isn't it? We've been talking about Edom, we think about Judah and Israel, and then all of a sudden, all the nations are being judged. What's going on? Well, the day of the Lord is a, a term of special divine judgment. At the end of the time, end of time, the Bible tells us that God will judge the world. But along the way, there will be local judgments, which in a very real way, they bring end-time judgment forward. So this is what happened to Israel. If you look at verse um, 12 and 14 there, we can see the day of the Lord popping up again and again. So do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. And so it goes on. So this, the very, in a very real way, God has brought Judgment Day forward because of Israel's sins. They have been judged because of their sins. And for Edom, this has also happened. They have been judged ahead of time because of the nature and seriousness of their sins. What's interesting is that now Edom has come in, in this book to represent all those who are proud and exalt themselves against God. So even Edom's very name actually speaks to this. So it's really interesting in the Hebrew, it's, it's spelt exactly the same as Adam. Just a slightly different vowel system. But Adam, of course, means man or mankind. So Edom actually means man. So this day of judgment on Edom serves as a warning on what will happen to all nations and men and people who reject God in arrogance and treat God's people with contempt. Now the result of the day of the Lord for Edom is that it ceased to exist. You won't find them anywhere today. They were later defeated by the Babylonians, and eventually they were um, finally destroyed by invading Arab tribes. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't follow God, then God's treatment of Edom and the nations is a warning to you. God has graciously given you life, 
We should thank him for that. And he holds back his full judgment upon you so that you can come to him in humility and repentance. But one day, this will not be the case. One day, God will settle all debts with all people, and there will be only one hope for you. And that's you are found within God's people on his holy mountain. Verse 17. You see, God has a plan for his people, a plan of restoration and redemption, not judgment. For the Jews back then, this this did actually involve a return to the land. Yet even this was partial and incomplete because they didn't give back all their land and eventually God kicked them out again for rebellion. But in the day that the Lord fully restores his people, it'll be into a holy kingdom where all the descendants of Esau, the arrogant, the proud, the violent, have been removed from the land, and Israel, or God's people, shall possess theirs once again. And the one who will be leading this victorious renewal will be Christ. Do you see verse 21? It speaks of saviors, plural, ruling Edom from Jerusalem. Now, plural is interesting, but it does seem to speak of a partial fulfillment under the rule of the Maccabees, who um, did reinstitute the Jewish kingship for a very short time. And they did conquer Edom, and Edom kind of got subsumed into Israel. But ultimately, if we fast forward to the end of time, this, um, this has a bigger meaning. So the word here for Savior is the same root word for Joshua, which of course is Jesus' Hebrew name. So, what's, so by ruling Mount Edom, Obadiah is proclaiming that Jesus shall rule the world. So people of God, take heart this morning. I don't know where your life is now, whether it's going magnificently well or whether it's um, suffering and struggling in life due to injustices or other problems or somewhere in between. But know this, in the end, Jesus shall reign and he shall bring peace and justice for all eternity and you will dwell with him forever in the holy mountain of the Lord. Now until that day, we as believers in Christ can expect to see injustice at various levels in this world as a result of sin. Um, but it also doesn't mean that we should fatalistically shrug our shoulders. We shouldn't just be, eh, it doesn't matter. No, we should actually be saddened when proud sinners shake their fist at God by their actions. And more than this, we should actually fight injustice in the world as we come across it. But the tool that we've been given is not some social movement of activism. Rather, it's with the power of the gospel of Jesus. We need to show the world that what verse 21 declares, that one day the kingdom will be the Lord's, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. This is a message of hope we can bring to a world seeking justice, that there is a God who is just, all-powerful, and who will one day rule the kingdom of this world in perfect righteousness and justice. A God who even now graciously holds out his hand, offering them to enter his kingdom through his son. What a day it will be for us, his people, when Jesus finally takes the throne as the king of justice and grace and leads us into his possession. Amen.